Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but we've just come up to the start of our second year of the COVID pandemic. In fact, we're about to start into a, a first year anniversary of the lockdown. So it's really an auspicious time for him. I, I seem to think myself personally as looking at everything that's happened, it seems like we've been very inward focused. I look at everything that's been going on and the news just seems to be so heavily slanted towards COVID that almost to the exclusion of everything else. We hear of the changing restrictions. We hear of infection rates. We hear now of the vaccine distribution. So everything seems to be fixed on this. And yet, you know, I've, I've gone and I've looked at other newscasts around the world. I, I keep abreast on some Latin American countries, sometimes the United States and, and even England. And they, like us, seem to be predominantly focused inward on the realities of COVID and what this means for their population. But the other day I got an email from social media and I can't remember where it was, but it was a plea for urgent prayer on behalf of brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering severe persecution in North Korea. I went on and read and I couldn't believe it, but not only do Christian estimates, but secular estimates, they say that there's about 30,000 believers of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, our brothers and sisters, who are imprisoned in camps right now because they refuse to denounce Christ. While our eyes have been fixed on the realities of what we're dealing here in a pandemic, there are world leaders and, and nations who have taken this opportunity, the advantage of the pandemic to further their own desires, further their own goals and aspirations without much attention by the rest of the media, without any interference by other countries. They're flexing their muscle internationally, <clears throat> persecuting whole people groups, even to the point of genocide. It's really the old saying, never let a good crisis go to waste. Now, we're aware that evil exists in the world. We're aware of the immorality all around us. But we've been conveniently distracted and focused on ourselves. And I hope that as we come out of this pandemic myopia, that as the people of God, we will recognize the horrors, the evils of our day and cry out to God afresh, especially for those brothers and sisters in countries where they're being persecuted for their faith. Now, as believers, we're all going to be faced with the reality and burdens and, and, and trials of life. We may not be under persecution, but we will know severe heartache or the loss of a child, you know, the loss of a, a spouse. We will wrestle with God earnestly about what his purposes are. And so as we come this morning, we need to look at what we're going to see in the book of Habakkuk as crucial, as important. Prayer in the form of lament is an important part of our spiritual walk with God. So when our burden is vexed with this, uh, the pain and the anxiety of this uh, frustration, when we're confounded by the mystery of God's providence, or we're baffled that God seems to be indifferent to the justice in the world, when our frustrations, our anxieties, our fears are threatened to take us to a really dark space and where we're going to be in doubt and depression, earnestly grappling with God 
bearing our, our frustrations and our burdens to Him. It's so important for our spiritual development. Now, if you're married and you've gone through marriage counseling, you've undoubtedly heard the challenge of learning to have a good fight. It, it's a way of saying, you know, you can set boundaries between the two spouses and then they can air their grievances in a way that's acceptable. Well, what we're going to see this morning in the book of Habakkuk isn't something dissimilar to that. Because Habakkuk presents to us what I'm going to encourage you is a pattern for us to follow as we learn to contend with God. Now, I use the word contend very specifically here, very intentionally, because Habakkuk isn't simply intellectually interested in what's going on in God's purpose. He's not simply thinking about what, what the issues are. As we're going to see, he cries out to God. And he challenges God on the basis of his own nature. If you're holy, if you're righteous, how can you do these things? So, so contending with God means more than simple mentally or simply mentally wrestling with God's purposes or his intentions and things. It's, it has the idea of challenging God, confronting him, questioning him by faith, and then waiting for an answer in his response. Now, as you can imagine, the whole idea of challenging God is a pretty silly thing, isn't it? It's crazy. Who can challenge a holy and all-powerful God? But what we're going to see is that faith isn't something, something, something simply static or, or something passive. Faith grows and it becomes more resilient as it learns to contend with the hard issues of life. As it wrestles with God, crying out for understanding, and then again, waiting for him for to respond. Now, if you remember in chapter 1, Habakkuk's first prayer of lament, he comes unto God and he says, look at the injustice and the evil that is in Israel. Now, they've fallen away from the law. They no longer practice the worship of uh, one true God, Yahweh. In every way, they're acting just as evil as the nations around them. His hope was undoubtedly that God would bring a revival, that, that somewhere God would raise up a preacher or a prophet and he would go forth and the people would respond. But God says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians to bear upon my people. I'm going to bring the Babylonians as my agent of discipline. Now, in his second prayer at the start of verse 12 here in chapter 1, we don't know how much time has elapsed, but there's been some time. It's, he's no longer looking at the Babylonians on the horizon, but he sees the devastation all around him. They have come. They are taking and dismantling the nation of Israel apart. He sees the evil that they do. And so he now comes to God and he contends with God. God's choice of using the Babylonians wasn't just shocking. It was deeply troubling because it goes against everything he believes in about the character and the nature of God. And that's where he starts. Instead of releasing all the frustration and anxiety and, and dumping all this in an uncontrolled outburst, he starts in verse 12, or in verse 13, no, in verse 12, where we all must by faith. And that is, he rehearses what he knows to be true about God. He proclaims what he knows and believes in. 
Despite the horrendous situation and the circumstances going on around him, he makes three important statements about the character and the nature of God that we need to reflect on very quickly. First of all, God is everlasting, meaning that God has no beginning. He has no end. He is eternal in all things. So no matter what's going on in the world, it does not affect God's end purpose in all things. Even more, God is himself unchanging in nature and in character. So despite the Babylonians, despite the chaos and destruction, God's covenantal love, which he has has shown and committed to his people Israel, will not change, nor will it change in the future. Second thing he says is God is holy, which in this case he's saying God is upright and righteous in all he does. He, He is pure. He hates evil, and evil cannot be in his presence. Now, God, uh, how can God use such evil? That's at the very heart of who he is. He says, if God is holy, how can God use evil? But for now, at the start of verse 12, he simply lays out and declares his trust in the holiness of God. The third thing he proclaims is God's sovereignty. He sees the rising and the fall of nations around him and Babylon and and Egypt and all of these things and and even Israel and Judah itself. And he understands that all of this is under the sovereign control of God. It's all unfolding according to God's good purposes and his plan. He even declares very purposely, you have ordained and established the Babylonians of reproof and judgment. So you are raising them up at this time. Now, we need to understand that these are not simply theological truths that he's spouting. These are the foundation of his faith. This is at the very core of who he believes. He believes God is everlasting, eternal, God is holy, and God is sovereign. And we see that because he says, Oh, my Lord, my Holy One, oh, rock of my salvation. So again, the prophet isn't simply affirming head facts about God. He's actually claiming things that he knows to be true about God. These are things that in his experience with God in the past, God has confirmed to be true. And these are things that define now his present relationship with God by faith, despite whatever else is going on in the world around him. So this morning, the first thing we need to ask ourselves is, are we able to say the same thing? Despite the trials and the struggles and the injustice that we may be feeling, despite the spiritual burdens and the pain that that may threaten to overwhelm us, can we say with all certainty, God is holy, God is sovereign, God is eternal? Or are they just words that we've picked up over the years because we've come to church and we can recite them in time of need? Um, But perhaps, are they actually part of your relationship with God? Have you experienced the grace and the mercy of God? And are you reassured of the excellencies of these characteristics because you have walked with him? Because here's the reality. At the end of all this, life gets hard. And this is the only place that the child of God can start by standing on the rock of what we know. Is Jesus Christ the rock of your salvation? Well, we again, again we, we know that one day, sooner or later, we will be faced by serious trials, by burdens, 
Our bodies will break down. We will face great adversity somehow, spiritual hardships, and we don't know when they will come. But by faith, we need to be ready. About two years ago, I had a young cousin by the name of Daniela die. When she was only about 18 months, she was in the backyard with her older brother, who was just a, a little bit older, and they had one of those little inflatable pools and only about it, maybe two inches of water, I'm told, in the bottom of it. Well, mom wasn't looking for a brief second and Daniela went down face first and couldn't get up. And by the time her little brother was able to alert them and they got there, there was permanent damage. Not only was she, did she experience permanent brain damage, but she was a quadriplegic for life. And as I was talking to my dad just, just the other day about this whole thing, he said, you know, there was a lot of, of, of serious head trauma there. But there were flashes of recognition of what was going on around her. And one of them was supposedly when her older sister was getting married. And at some time during the service, as they're going through their vows, she just let go of this big sigh. And everyone heard as, as if this will never be me. How, how do you deal with your child almost drowning, saving them, but then living a life as a quadriplegic with serious head trauma and all of the care that had to go in year after year? If the book of Ecclesiastes has taught us anything, it's that life is short and, and the world is full of injustice. So one day trials will come. We will feel the crushing burden and, and, uh, of spiritual trials. And we will need to cry out to God, why? How long? And we must start by standing on the surety of what we know and have experienced about God. He is eternal. He is holy. He is sovereign. If our hearts are stayed on these things, because we have experienced them and God has revealed them his love toward us, then we can say, just like the prophet here, that despite the darkness we may feel, we shall not die. In verses 13 to 17, the, the prophet's complaint comes to full flower. How can a pure and holy God avail himself of such an evil nation? It's almost incomprehensible. Yes, there was a serious problem with Israel. They, they had fallen away from the worship of Yahweh. But certainly they were nowhere near the evil of, of Babylon. Surely that was too much of a reproach. Surely that was too much discipline. I remember in the late 60s, I was probably only around seven or eight, there was uh, another wave of influenza and flu that went out at that time. It, it wasn't as difficult and as challenging as it is now. We never had any lockdowns, but I, I remember getting sick. And I remember my mom getting a, ver a vial of this very vile medicine 
every time she came around, I, I wanted to recoil because you, you put it in your mouth and, and it would just taste so awful. And then it would get down into your stomach and it would just make you feel queasy for, for a while. It truly felt that the cure was worse than the disease. I would have rather just gone to my bed and, and just lied there. Well, I think much of the same thing is happening here in Habakkuk. The description of the atrocities that we see in verses 15 through 17 are really barbarous. I, I don't know if you see them, but they're cruel beyond belief. And nations are defenseless before them. The the Babylonians would sweep in. They would gather up the peoples just like fish, like throwing their nets out. And then they would take their their slaves and they would line them up and parade them, connected one to another with fish hooks, big hooks through their cheeks. Now, for, for the Babylonians, life was cheap. They were cruel. They were merciless. They were cold hearted. I don't know if it was typical of all boys, but in my generation, at least, I remember going out as a, a little kid and enjoying learning about nature around me. But I remember some of the ways we did it. One of them was we, we actually had a magnifying glass and my friend and I would go out and we would find things to burn. We'd start with pine needles and leaves and, and somehow it progressed to caterpillars and ants. And the, the thing was to wait to see the agony and the writhing of, of this insect under the, the hot uh, ray of the sun. Well, again, there's much the same thing going on here with the, with the Babylonians. They were vicious. They were ruthless. They were barbaric in their treatment of other nations. The world was their playground, and they were callous schoolboys who, who gained a, sargis, a sardistic a sadistic satisfaction in hurting others. And then they gloated about it and, and found a way to self-justify it. They were treacherous. They were, were relentless. And they were merciless. If you think about what's being presented to us here, you know, it's really, it, it fall, it's a holocaust. Well, we're talking about a catastrophic slaughter a killing off uh, of tens of thousands of people, a ravaging of the land. It, it, it certainly seems like the cure was worse than the disease, doesn't it? And this gets to the heart of the, the problem for the prophet in verse 13. How can a righteous and holy God use such an evil nation against his own people? Every aspect of the law pointed to God's absolute purity and holiness, his rectitude. Even the gold that was used in the temple had to be pure gold. If God is righteous in every way and he's holy in every way, how can he use such an evil people to reprove Israel? If God is unable to even look upon uh, evil, how can he not be repulsed by what he sees going on before him? How can he not be affected by the, inflicted, uh, the, the pain that's being inflicted upon his people? Is this really the means of a holy God? But he goes one step further in verse 14. Because there he says, You made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawly things that have no ruler. God, 
the responsibility ultimately comes back to you. You made us this way. That's a pretty hard thing to say to God, isn't it? You're the source of this pain and, and, and this destruction. And I don't think it's simply a quiet resolution uh, and understand, well, this must be God's will, so we'll deal with it. This is a, you made us this way. Why? So we can see Habakkuk's torment here. We can see his anguish. He's standing on the rock of God's holiness. But he's unable to fathom how God's holiness can include such an evil people against his own. So he's crying out to God. He's unburdening his soul. How can you allow this? What we see in verses 13 through 17 is Habakkuk is contending with God. He's laying it all out there in all its raw emotion. He never quite charges God with the responsibility or, or says, God, you're guilty of this evil. But he comes close. He's wrestling with what he knows to be true about the very character and nature of God and how God can be using this evil to, uh, to, against his people. And there's an important element, an example for us to learn here this morning. Again, there will be days in our lives when we will feel the depth of hurt and injustice. When we will feel overwhelmed by spiritual burdens. When, when we feel like life is just going to swallow us up and, and we, we need to cry out, Why? How long? How can you, Lord? is that prayer of faith that says i stand know to be true of you but i don't understand it's the prayer by bring our complaints to god we bring our frustrations our god and we honestly demonstrate the depth of the hurt the pain that we're experiencing earnestly with words that express that hurt and we pour out our soul. It's we yet humbly contend with God understanding. Now at times that, that actually border on challenging God about what we know about him. Yet we must never blame God as the source of evil. Lament is the prayer of faith. Of, of complaining to God of contending with God, of grappling with him in a way that seeks to find answers to the deepest pain and hurts that we have. Faith must have an outcry or an outlet to cry out to God and ask, why? How long? But it can't end there. And that's why it's so important to actually see what now happens in chapter 2, verse 1, because the prophet waits on God. Notice what he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I, I think our natural tendency, if we were to cry out to God for help, would probably just to leave it there and somehow trust that God in his sovereignty, knowing that all things work for our good and his glory, would just say, you know, we leave it with you, God. 
Who are we to question the purposes of God? But faith, a faith that expresses itself in its deepest pain and lament, must wait on God's response. He may not respond the way we want. He may not respond as fast as we want. He may not respond in the way we want. But if we have brought our complaints to him in all of the pain and anguish, our next step must be to wait on him for his response. When I was in grades 5, 6, and 7, we lived in the little town of Acton, not too far away. At the back of the school, there was a train track. And then just inside, there was a, 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 a fence and then a whole series of big old trees. And from those trees, there was all these grapevines that, that, that hell, uh, came down. And they were thick. They were thick enough that we as kids could climb them in and swing in them. And we made forts. Every grade had its own fort. And we would go out in the early morning before classes started, at lunch, at recess, and even after the end. And we would be building forts and provoking each other. We would go on raids trying to do harm to other forts. But here's the thing, is that we were always provoking an answer. And so we had to have a sentry. We had to have someone who stood on guard on the highest point possible that could watch the whole spectrum of the school round before us and see who was trying to sneak up and seek revenge on us. And so we were provoking and we knew a response would come. So we had to wait and be vigilant. Well, in the same way, Habakkuk has provoked God. He's brought the depth of his anguish and complaints before God. And he says, how can you, a holy God who can't even look on evil, allow this? And he expects a response. So he stands on guard like a sentinel on a watch post. He's placed himself on continual alert, waiting and looking for God to respond to his heartfelt prayer. He's aware, I think, of, of the boldness of his accusations because it, it says very specifically that, and look to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. He knows he has come close to accusing God. And so he waits and said, perhaps because of my cheekiness, I, I need to eat my words. I too need to be disciplined. But here's the thing. In faith, he had to express the full depth and range of his emotion and pain. And here's the thing about God, about Habakkuk waiting on God at his watch post. Because standing at a watch post it necessitates certain things, doesn't it? it? It demands things of us. It demands that we be wakeful. We have to be alert. We can't fall asleep at, our, at the task. It means that we have to be physically and spiritually alert at all times. It means that we need to be attentive we need to pay attention and never let our guard down just in case God spoke at that time and, and we missed it. And we need to be vigilant. We need to be alert to the dangers around us, especially from our own hearts that would say, God's not going to answer. Don't worry about it. Waiting on, heart, on God is hard. We've unburdened our soul but often we have to carry pain and frustration a little bit longer until God brings us healing. And in the interim time, while we wait, 
But we need to persevere. We need to stand on the rock of faith. Now, all this brings the question, do we really expect God to answer when we pray? Do we really expect God, when we cry out and lament, to him to, for him to answer us? Do we have a sense of expectation? Because in expectancy, there's hope. We may wait for a long time. We may never get an answer this side of heaven. So we need to deal with the unresolved pain and, and, and sadness, but we need to stand at our watch post, vigilantly waiting. Why? Because waiting is hoping, and hoping is faith. The world cries out and grieves in, in situations like this at the loss of a child. But we do not grieve as the world grieves. We lament in prayer to the living God and then await him to answer, to bring a response to our concerns. This is, this is why lament is so important to our spiritual lives. It's how we bring our pain, our sorrow to God and contend with the Lord, yet still stand firm on what we know is good and true and faithful about him. It bridges the suffering of our circumstances with the eternal destiny that still awaits us. Ultimately, lament brings us back to worship, as we're going to see in a few weeks. For, for now, this morning, we need to be content in an understanding that as we come and lament, we are first and foremost to rehearse what we know about God to be true. Second, we are to lay it all out there, all of the ugliness, all of the pain. And third, we are to wait on him. Now, I don't know if you know, but Habakkuk's name actually means one who grapples with God. And it reminds me of someone else who wrestles with God, and that's Jacob in Genesis 32. As he wrestles with God, his name is changed from Jacob to Israel, which actually means wrestles with God. And here's the reality. Each one of us will have our peniel. We will have our mount of pain when we wrestle with God. And as we learn to contend with God by faith, we grow in faith and worship him. We need to learn how to fight the good fight of faith. At the end of it all, we still have the question, well, why in God's providential care of all things is there still so much suffering? We don't have an answer here. But I love what one preacher says. Our problem is underestimating the task that undertook or that that let me start again. Our our problem is underestimating the task undertaken in redeeming a fallen world and our lack of awareness of the intensity on the part of Jesus Christ that was required to save it. This gives us a little bit of perspective, I think, at least it doesn't solve all the problems. But we know that in lament, it's a prayer of faith, a crying out to God. It is our heart struggling, contending to find answers in a sovereign God whom we base our eternity on. And it is absolutely necessary for the Christian walk. I pray this morning that you've been encouraged by this. And if you haven't yet dealt uh, with a hurt in the past and you're carrying that burden still, that you will release it even today by crying out to God and, and then waiting. 
waiting until he answers, wrestling and contending with a holy, sovereign, and righteous God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a wonderful God you are. There are so many times when you feel distant, when you as a holy God, apart from this creation, uh, you seem like you may be uninterested and uninvolved in the world, but we know otherwise. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sin. We thank you that you are a loving, caring God, and that you present to us a means of unburdening the darkest, hardest moments of our life unto you, of crying out to you and finding release and embracing truth. Lord, I, I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who needs to do that, that you would just prompt them to do so. And, and if there is any issue between a brother and sister in Christ, that you would just bring reconciliation even this morning. Thank you for leading us and guiding us in your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.